Hey, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts, a religious folklore and Christian theology podcast. Here, we discuss stories from the Bible, the Apocrypha, and the fine line between myth and history surrounding various belief systems. We take on the stories in a sarcastic and humor-driven way that doesn't take itself too seriously, but still shines a light on the principles and ideology behind the stories and their origin. Today's stories are from the Hebrew Bible, and they take place chronologically somewhere between our other two stories of the Hebrews' quest for the Promised Land, after the Egyptians have been drowned in the Red Sea, but before the Hebrews try to get into the Promised Land and correlates a rebellion. You don't have to have listened to the previous episodes to hear this one. It will be relatively standalone, with the main backstory you need to know is that the Hebrews keep getting into crazy and bizarre situations where they are absolutely not thankful for their newfound freedom and find ways to screw up. We'll learn how easy it is to craft gold into intricate objects, where to get good food when you're tired of honey grams, and how much pheasant it takes to make someone vomit. The kings in the Middle Ages would eat a whole pheasant at a meal, so we're already ballparking more than one per sitting. Let's go ahead and get into the story. The Hebrew camp was in an uproar. Moses had been gone for seven weeks. Clearly, they needed to do something. Never mind the fact that seven weeks ago, they'd been shaking with terror as God showed his presence to them and allowed Moses and only one other companion to climb Mount Sinai to meet with him. It was obvious that Moses was just some crazy man and they needed a God to lead them. He will definitely come back soon was no longer an acceptable answer. They were tired of sitting here in one place and they needed to get back on the move. If they couldn't find a new God, they would make one. Wait, hold up, Aaron said. As nice as it might be just to craft a God to solve all your troubles every time stuff gets a bit hard, you can't really make a God. Best case scenario, you find one and they take you on as a worshiper and you hope they don't require you to do something crazy like burn your daughter alive so that the snow melts or carve a flower into your forehead or something equally ridiculous. No, 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 the elders tried to explain. You carve some wood or melt some metal, make a cool shape like, how about a calf or something? And then you say it represents a God that exists somewhere else. Like maybe we'll say our calf represents Yahweh. Aaron held up his hands. The Yahweh that just said people making statues to represent him or any other God deserve death? That Yahweh? Like he only told us 10 things not to do and making a calf literally violates two of them at least. And those plans for the worship service? I like hookups just as much as anyone else, but we're literally talking about doing three of the ten things Yahweh told us not to do, whatever happens. After we were afraid for our lives seven weeks ago, as he appeared in the middle of lightning and thunder and said, whatever you do, do not do this. Okay, so Yahweh was here seven weeks ago and said something about no metal statues. Okay, sure. But then he took Moses into the mountain, did God knows what with him, Literally, God knows what, and then he just kind of disappeared. Yes, Aaron enunciated patiently. That doesn't mean he won't come back and punish us if we start making gold statues. And really, a calf? Why don't we worship a lion, a wolf? Hell, it wouldn't be the worst thing if we started worshiping a frog and then shrieking at each other with frog noises. But you're picking the most pathetic of all the animals and we're worshiping that. I'm out. The elders got up in Aaron's face. We like you. You're way nicer than Moses, and we really hope it stays that way. Do us a favor, Aaron. Fine. Aaron rolled his eyes. 
Where were they going to find the gold to make a frog? Calf? It had to be a calf? Fine. Where were they going to find the gold to make a calf? That stuff doesn't grow on trees. And they were in the desert, so there were no trees anyways. So even if it did grow on trees, it wouldn't be a help. How about you take out your earrings out and hand them over? If like several thousand of you give us your earrings, we can make a big calf. Done and done, the elder said. Give us a few hours and we'll get you your gold. A few hours later, Aaron sat in the middle of a pile of earrings of all sorts. Short ones, long ones, fancy ones, some fake ones with a cheap gold looking covering scratched off. Wait, they had modern advancements and cheap finery? He tossed the fake ones into the corner and crumpled to the ground. He hadn't expected this. He thought that they would have been 100% ready to hold onto their earrings and then he wouldn't have to make the calf. But now that he had hundreds of thousands of pieces of jewelry at his feet, he'd already gone too far to turn around. If this was more important to them than their beloved earrings, he'd be in a lot of trouble if he took both. Fine. Get the smiths and artisans and bellows ready. We're making ourselves a god. And they were. Aaron, now all in on the whole calf worship thing, built an altar in front of this calf and told everyone that tomorrow was going to be a celebration for Yahweh, whom this calf represented. Perhaps in a desperate attempt to go halvesies and meet sin in the middle and stop the elders from saying they were going to be worshipping the Baals or something. Even though Aaron may have stopped the people from worshipping the Baals in name, the effect was pretty much the same. The worship service looked nothing like a celebration to the Lord and everything like a feast to the Canaanite gods. The Bible said the people ate and drank and rose up to play, and I'll lead you to guess what play meant, but it surely wasn't capture the flag. While the Hebrews were dancing around the calf like madmen and playing, God was seeing all of this, and he was not happy. About the time the Hebrews were twirling and whirling around the calf like Victorian-era holy rollers, God told Moses to get down and tell his people off, or maybe God should just wipe them all out. What idiots! He'd given them ten things not to do, and now these people were doing three of those things and claiming that they were doing those things to celebrate and praise him. Okay, rabbit hole. So as much as I've gone on about the commandments being 10 things not to do, that's only how the legalistic Christian sees them. The Bible talks about the Old and New Covenants, and that's a complex topic with a name that's a mouthful. So let's go through this as simply as I can without really interrupting the story. The Old Covenant is the agreement that the Hebrews made with God seven weeks before this story takes place. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. Just please go get out of here. The Old Covenant approach is viewing the rules as a checklist of things to do and things not to do, and the idea is that if you do all the things that God wants you to do and don't do any of the things that he tells you not to do, then he'll give you a reward, like he really is that petty and cares so much about what you do for the simple sake of his ego. The Old Covenant is doing stuff under your own power to please God and make him happy enough to give you good things. The New Covenant is the agreement that God makes with the Hebrews later on and with all Christians today if they're willing to abandon the Old Covenant approach. A simplification of the New Covenant is that if you're willing, God will give you the desire to do the things that make up who He is as a person and to avoid the things that will objectively destroy humanity. God doesn't get mad because His ego is bruised when you kill people, cheat on your spouse, or work on the seventh day of the week. He is hurt because He loves humanity and He knows that doing these things 
will cause humans misery, and he's not a big fan of humans being miserable. The new covenant is God helping humans to do the right thing, to do those things that represent who he is as a person, instead of you doing them on your own, just to fill out a simple checklist. So when God saw the people dancing before the golden calf, he wasn't offended because they weren't obeying him just because he was petty like that, but he created humans and he knew that dancing around the calf and hooking up with people in a frenzy wasn't really the way to go. I mean, even humans can tell you that one. And as we discussed in a previous episode, God was not planning to kill all the Hebrews. Instead, he was giving Moses the chance to plead on their behalf. And plead he did. Moses begged God to shut him out of heaven in return for giving the Hebrews a second chance. Imagine having someone love you that much. Also, imagine trying to kill that person because that's what the Hebrews try to do. A side note, God's response was that he would only ever shut someone out of heaven based on their own wrongdoing, but never based on the wrongdoing of someone else. And really, that's what we all do whenever we knowingly do evil. We do the thing that we know killed Jesus just because we think it would be fun. That's something to think about. Anyway, wow, this podcast has really gotten religious. My perspectives on religion have definitely changed since I started this podcast, and definitely partially because I've been doing this podcast, and I'm sure it's pretty obvious if you've listened from the beginning. So let's steer our way back to the story. Despite God telling Moses and his companion exactly what was going on in the camp, the companion was still puzzled. Was that a war going on in the camp? But Moses had been at heathen worship services regularly for the first 40 years of his life. He knew exactly what was going on. Did it sound like people shouting with victory or wailing with defeat? Joshua shook his head. Exactly. What he was hearing, Moses explained, was the sound of singing. Oh, singing. Joshua slapped his head. How didn't he work that one out? But Moses didn't hear him, and he looked over and he saw something that he had never seen before. He saw Moses, towering, furious, white beard waving in the wind, and his appearance could be said to be terrible like Dumbledore was after finding out that a Death Eater had been working in secret under his nose for a year. Moses shouted in anger, throwing the tablets of sapphire cut from God's own throne onto the stony desert ground where they shattered into a million pieces. In a cold fury, he ground the calf into powder, poured it into water, and forced the Hebrew leaders to drink it. He then calmly yet coldly walked over to Aaron, demanding an explanation from his brother as to why he'd allowed this. Aaron shrugged. He just tossed some gold into the fire and wow, this calf came out. And then like the people just started worshiping it and having sex in the open. And I was like, why are you doing this? And they're like, oh, wow, it's a calf, obviously a God. You're telling me that you just tossed some gold into a fire and suddenly it took the form of a calf and then people just fell down and worshiped it? Moses queried. I mean, I might buy that if a calf appeared for no reason when you threw some gold into the fire, some people would have definitely started worshiping it. Humans have literally been known to worship anything, but I definitely am not buying that story about its origin. What can I say? Aaron pleaded. It's what happened. Yes, 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 the people screamed. That's what happened. The calf just came out of the fire. It just appeared. What a miracle. The people continued twirling and whirling and having sex like the Dothraki, and Moses shuddered. These guys weren't listening to him at all and were completely out of control. And we'll find out what happens next, right after this. So Moses stood up on a high place where everyone could see him and shouted. He asked those who were on Yahweh's side to identify themselves. 
And while some others may have taken God's side, the entire tribe of Levi did for sure. Yeah, the calf stuff? We weren't down with that, they explained. Moses nodded. Good. Well, would they just go out and kill everybody then? Wait, what? They hadn't signed up for this. They weren't about to go through the camp and just start killing people willy-nilly. Just kidding. This was what needed to be done. Moses nodded. Yeah, go kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. Anyone who is still worshiping. And that's pretty much what happened. The tribe of Levi and the other Moses-appointed Avengers went through the camp, cutting down about 3,000 of the people who were dancing and worshiping wherever the now ground-into-powder calf used to sit. These people finally decided that, yes, if we continue to do this, we're probably going to get killed and stopped worshiping the place where the calf used to be. Imagine seeing people go through your worship service with guns shooting up the service until you stopped and you were just doing it because it was fun and you didn't clear out until like the first few thousand people got shot. Oh, and after your high-ranking people were literally made to drink the ground-up fragments of what you had been worshiping. Because that's what the Hebrews did. Eventually the whole thing was over. The golden calf was in the stomachs of the higher-ups. About 3,000 people lay dead. A small minority of the people were still roaming around with swords and the rest were wailing at the loss of their calf or wondering what in the name of vanity they had been thinking for worshiping the statue of a calf. But it wasn't too long before they started complaining again. First, just in general, this sucked, everything sucked, being slaves wasn't this bad. Then, more specifically, the food sucked. They were sick and tired of eating carob chips and yeast flakes. Like, it wasn't bad at first, but they'd been eating it forever and it was so gross now. Back when they were slaves, they ate fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Now they only ate manna. You were slaves, Moses said exasperatedly. Who cares if you had some cucumbers and melons to eat if you literally got beaten twice daily? We're also on our way to a place called the Land of Milk and Honey, which is literally named after two good things to eat. Hold on and we'll get there. And we're eating food that tastes like wafers made with honey. Half the people who make this journey probably end up subsisting on snake and cactus. No, give us meat, we want it. Give us meat or we die. Okay, fine, Moses said. I'll pray to God. And Moses did. He prayed for God to kill him. He was tired of this. These people were completely irrational and he was sick of it. He wanted nothing to do with them anymore. He'd rather be dead. Hold on, God answered. He'd handle it. And to handle it, he did. God first set up some assistants for Moses, 70 in total, to delegate responsibility so Moses wasn't handling literally everything. He then announced his ruling. They were going to get meat. Really? The Hebrews whooped and cheered. Shout loud enough and even God himself would listen up. The catch. You're going to get it for a whole month. Double cheer. This was great. Moses wasn't sure exactly how this was going to work. Was God going to render an entire species extinct to feed millions of people? God was God. He could do whatever he wanted. Literally whatever he wanted. They'd seen food fall from the sky, rocks break open and spout water, and a huge body of water gets split down the middle and people walk through where it used to be on dry land. Surely God could provide a little bit of meat. Oh, and since he was God, he'd be adding a bit of a catch. They'd get meat for a month, but they'd have so much to eat that it would literally come out of their nose and make them want to vomit. The Hebrews decided in spite of this curse that yes, they were going to eat it. That was, of course, the obvious choice. 
So the next day when quail started appearing all over the place in hordes, so many of the Hebrews could just wave sticks around and knock them out of the sky, that's exactly what they did. They went out, harvested quail, went back, cooked them and ate them. This was wonderful. We're talking, there were hordes of quail 25 miles out from the camp in all directions, approximately three to four feet deep, packed in like sardines. This just completely blows my mind. The people killed them and killed them and killed them, and there were still more and more quail. The Bible says that the person who gathered the least amount of quail gathered 10 homers worth. Now, homers aren't a measurement we use today, but from what I can gather, we're talking 1,900 birds or almost 500 pounds of quail gathered in total. My mind is literally blown, and I cannot wrap my mind around the fact that this was how much quail was gathered, but sure, maybe we're talking about 500 pounds per family. That's still mind-boggling, but less so than 500 pounds per individual. Well, whether it was God tacking a curse onto the quail, or much more likely, food poisoning from families working their way through hundreds of pounds of birds without refrigeration and in the desert heat, the people got sick. Really sick. And many of the ringleaders in the quail fiasco died and were buried there. And supposedly, the people learned that there were reasons why God did not give them whatever they wanted when they demanded it, and more importantly, you could not just pressure God into giving you what you wanted without its natural consequences or the consequences of insulting God. The New Testament brings up the fact that both the golden calf and the quail stories were written down to be examples for us. So how are these stories examples for us, besides the obvious don't have sex while worshiping an idol and don't demand that God send a chicken dinner falling from the sky next time you're super hungry? Well, you see, all of these people claimed to be followers of Yahweh. They all experienced the same things. They went through the wilderness with Moses, saw the incredible miracles, and even personally benefited from those miracles. But out of all those people, only two of the people over 20 made it out of the wilderness alive. The rest refused to take God seriously, refused to enter the promised land, tried to kill Caleb and Joshua, rebelled, and all the fun stuff you see in this season's episodes 5 and 6. These stories are told as a warning not to desire evil things like they did. They underestimated what the cost of evil was and didn't make it out alive. We shouldn't make the same mistakes. Don't be idolaters, the golden calf story warns us. And aside from the classic and overused, if you like anything more than God, it's an idol, there's additional warnings in the golden calf story. Stemming from the warning against idols, we should be where to seek other things besides God as a way out. Too often, we are hurt, empty and scared, and we try to fill those holes with pretty much anything except serving and trusting God. And I know I'm really digging into cliches here, but it's true. It's something we really just have to learn over time from our own failures. The Hebrews thought Moses was gone and that God had abandoned them. They were alone in the desert, so wow, let's make ourselves a calf. And they had the fun party and sex worship that got their minds off the whole thing and made them feel better for a while. Sound familiar? I hope not, but it probably does. I'm not doing a sermon on this, so I'm not going to continue with pulling lessons out of the golden calf story, because the one I just brought out is probably an extremely relevant one to the average person. With the quail story, the lesson is not to complain. And the lesson isn't what we might infer, don't say anything bad about your situation or you'll die, because that's ridiculous. It's natural and okay to discuss those things that are hard in our lives and to get help for the problems that we have. The lesson is about blaming God. Why is God leading us this way? What is wrong with God? Why has he abandoned us? 
And of course there are times where we'll cry out to God, confused and wondering why our prayers don't seem to be faithful. But in the end, we are happier if we keep trusting God instead of blaming Him for all the problems in our lives and begging Him for the things that we really don't need. Because that's the second lesson from the quail story. Half the time we're begging God for something. It's something that we really don't need and wouldn't want if we knew what we were getting. Obviously, God knows what we'd be getting. He is God, after all. But we don't know what we're getting, and that's why we beg and complain until we get it. God's warning us that there's reasons why sometimes we're not getting what we ask for. The entire point of these stories is don't do these things. Trust me, I'm God. I've seen people do dumb things for 6,000 years, and it sucks. So there's obviously more lessons in these stories, and there's more that I could unpack, but I'm not doing a sermon, as I said earlier. I'm just going to call it quits for this week. Next time, we're going to be finishing up Season 2 with the story of the prodigal son and just how a killer song gave me a new perspective on the gospel because, yes, that's a fun way to finish the season off. I shouldn't underhype it. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm going to unleash my trademark sarcasm. Yay. Credits to myself, Caleb Howard, for scriptwriting and theme music. Special thanks to Anchor Podcasts and Evoke Music for providing the music and to all my amazing listeners. Please subscribe, leave a review, and most of all, share with your friends. I'm so glad you chose to take this time out of your day to listen to my podcast. Have a wonderful rest of your week.